yesterday I mentioned, or I suggested, that the zazen of the Buddhas is Buddha's zazen. The activity of Buddhas is a reciprocal activity. The zazen of the Buddhas is not something that Buddhas do all by themselves. It's, it, their zazen, their activity, is their activity with all beings. That's their activity, which can be called zazen. Another word for this is Buddha activity is a pivotal activity. The pivotal activity of Buddhas can be called zazen. But also, you can just, you can just set the word zazen aside and just say that ac- Buddha, activity, <coughs> Buddha activity is a pivotal activity. It's the way Buddha, or Great Awakening, is pivoting with all living beings. That's, that's what the activity of a Buddha is. It's a pivoting. It's a reciprocity with all beings. And uh, in the chant, <coughs> which we did yesterday and might do again today at noon service, um, which I suggested could, that chant could be named Buddha Samadhi, or Buddha Samadhi, or Buddha Samadhi. Isn't that a strange way to talk? (laughs) In that text it says, the zazen of even one person at one moment imperceptibly accords with all things. The way one person, for example, you or me, the way I am imperceptibly according with all things. That is zazen. Imperceptibly according with all things is zazen, and zazen is imperceptibly according with all things. But this is Buddha zazen. We say the, act, the, act, the zazen of one person, yes, but the way that one person is according with all things, all other living beings, all Buddhas, all Bodhisattvas, earth, grass, trees, sky, air, mountains and rivers, the way the way each of us is 
according with all those things, that is what is meant by zazen. According to, for example, one person who is called me. The way everything I do, the way everything you do, is imperceptibly according with all things, that's zazen. That's the practice of the Buddhas. It also says, and fully resonates through all time. The way you're fully resonating throughout all times is the activity of Buddhas. This, this, what's it called? This according with all things, it's, it's a reciprocal according. They're also according with you. You're according with them, they're according with you. You're calling to them, they're calling to you. Everything's calling to you, and you're calling to everything. And you're listening to all the cries, and all things are listening to all your cries. This reciprocity is Buddha activity. It's imperceptible, however. <clears throat> we can perceive things, like we can perceive each other, but what we perceive is not really each other. We perceive a perceptible version of each other. So we have a wonderful nervous system that can conjure up images of people which are not the people. Like my Im the image of you in my mind is not you. If I stop, if the image of you goes away, you don't disappear. I just lost, I just don't have an image of you anymore. And actually, you can go away, and I can make an image of you anyway, based on previous meetings. These images in my mind can be perceived. But the way I'm according with all of you right now, in this moment, is not a perception. It's not an image. I could have an image of it, but that image is not it. Just like I could have an image of you, and that image is not you. And some people do not even have an image of, uh, well, they sort of do. I was going to say they don't even have an image of, of uh, imperceptibly according. But you could make a word for imperceptibly according and then have an image of imperceptibly, you could have a perception of imperceptibly according. But of course, that wouldn't be it. We cannot perceive how we're according with everything. We cannot perceive the way Zazen actually is. We can't perceive <clears throat> sameness. But Zazen isn't just sameness. It's sameness according with difference, like the loom. Zazen is the loom, which is 
not moving, up and it's upright and true, and then it's all the differences, all the different fabrics being woven into it. The combination of each different person with the imperceptibly according with all things. The reciprocity of imperceptible and perceptible. The perceptible accords with all perceptibles, and that accordance is not perceptible. But that imperceptible accord includes all the perceptibles. None of them can possibly be excluded. All are included, and all include each other. But how a perception includes all other perceptibles is imperceptible. So this is a teaching for us who have perceptions about our perceptions, not to get rid of them, to honor them, to practice compassion towards them, because all perceptible things are calling for compassion. And by listening to them, we realize that they're calling us and we're calling them. And the things that are calling us are listening to us who are calling to them. By practicing compassion with perceptible things, we open to the imperceptible Buddha activity, where everything's pivoting with everything that it's not. And this pivotal relationship, which is the Buddha activity, liberates us from being trapped in our perceptions, trapped, enclosed, and clinging to what we can perceive, and suffering with that situation. It liberates the situation without moving a particle of dust without getting rid of any perceptions or any clinging. Because clinging is another thing that's practicing zazen. The zazen of one person, but also the clinging of one person imperceptibly accords with all things. Clinging one person that imperceptibly accords with all things is the zazen of the clinging. Everything's doing zazen. Everything's engaged in Buddha activity. A Buddha samadhi is to, is to be mindful, is to remember, is to uh, yeah, be undistracted from this teaching. The teaching about what's going on in Buddha, in Buddha activity. 
So Buddha activity also remembers Buddha activity. And everything supports the remembering of Buddha activity. And if there's any forgetting of Buddha activity, everything supports that too. And the way everything supports you to forget Buddha activity, and the way forgetting Buddha activity supports everything, is Buddha activity. And that's how you become free of forgetting Zazen. By Zazen. I just thought I might just briefly mention something else before I stop mentioning things. Recently in the great state of Minnesota, I was there. And somebody, <laughs> somebody asked me, uh, somebody said, I've been practicing just sitting for quite a long time, but recently I've been starting to practice mindfulness. And he said, What's the difference between mindfulness and just sitting? And I said, well, I'd rather not talk about that. <laughs> but I can tell you how mindfulness and just sitting are the same. When you practice mindfulness without trying to get anything, it's just sitting. And then there's a, there's a sutra, which I've read a few times. It's, I think it's called the, something like the Satipatthana Sutta in Pali. It can be translated as um, the scripture of the foundations of mindfulness. Have you heard about it, some of you? It, and it talks about four foundations of mindfulness. Four. And the first one is mindfulness of body. And the way I remember it is something like the Buddha says, when a monk is standing, a monk is aware of standing. When a monk is walking, she is aware of walking. When she's sitting, she's aware of sitting. And when she's reclining, she's aware of reclining. Does that sound familiar to those who've read that? That's called mindfulness of posture. Okay. The Buddha did not say, as far as I know, <laughs> the Buddha did not say, the monk does mindfulness of posture. I think the Buddha said, when the monk is standing, the monk is aware of standing. Another way to say this in the kind of reciprocal way is, when standing, with awareness of standing, that's a monk. A monk is, you could say a monk is aware of standing when standing. But also, that's what a monk is. You see? That's what a monk is, is awareness of posture. It doesn't say the monk 
is aware of posture in order to get enlightened. I don't think it says that. However, it does say that this mindfulness practice is the direct path. It's actually, it does say the direct path sort of to enlightenment. But I would say that when you're aware of your, the posture, without trying to get any enlightenment, that is enlightenment. That's the way a Buddha is aware of posture. A Buddha is sitting, a Buddha is aware of sitting, but the Buddha is not aware of sitting in order to get enlightened. It's an enlightened person who is aware of sitting. It's enlightened awareness, which is not trying to get enlightenment. Or it's not trying to get awareness either. It is just awakened awareness of posture. If anybody is sitting and being <laughs> struck by awareness of posture, if anybody's sitting and is aware of sitting, and they're thinking that they're being aware of the sitting, and they're thinking that they're being aware of the sitting in order to get enlightened, that person is calling for compassion. That person is enacting delusion. They're trying to get something other than what's available. They're thinking that enlightenment is other than what's available. What's available is like, no thanks. I'd like some enlightenment. Uh, wherever it is, I want it. They think enlightenment is something other than the practice. Buddha did not say enlightenment is something other than the practice, as far as I know. Maybe somebody will find it. Say, here it is right here. Buddha says, enlightenment is not the practice. Hi, I'm the Buddha. I practice, and enlightenment is not what I'm doing. What? No. Please. But if Buddha did say that, I would understand the Buddha saying, help me. I need some compassion here to get over this sense that what's going on is not what I should be working with. I should be working with something else, something better. And that kind of language is not forbidden. It just should be understood as calling for compassion. Every particular thing, in a way, is calling for compassion. And also, every particular thing is listening to all the other particular things, calling for compassion. In other words, everything is Buddha activity. Everything's engaged in it. Everything's zazen. And if you disagree with me, fine. You are welcome to disagree with me and also that language. But your disagreement is wholeheartedly calling for great compassion. And great compassion 
is totally, you know, wanting to come to you and enter you and help you be free of whatever you think without moving a particle of what you're thinking. Okay, so you, you got it, right? Zazen is imperceptibly according with all things. I mean, that's the message of this morning. You got it, right? What is it again? What's Zazen? Perception. And also, in order to, or in accord with according, in according with according to all things, would you, you know, would you please consider listening to all things as part of the according? Does it make sense if you want to accord with something? It might be appropriate to listen to it and look at it and maybe smell it. This, this actual Buddha activity is calling to us to receive it. It's offering itself to us because it's, it wants to accord with us. I mean, it is according with us, so it sends out accordion lines to us. But again, when somebody says, I don't like what's happening, maybe it's hard to hear that that person's asking you to listen to them. I don't want to accord with what's happening. I want to get what's happening to go away. That's the way they're according with you when you hear that. Or when you're talking like that, that's the way you're trying to accord with all things. It's imperceptible how you want to accord with all things, but it is perceptible how you say, I don't want to accord with all things. Matter of fact, I don't want to accord with this, what's going on here. I do not want to accord with it. I want to get rid of it. And after I get rid of it, then I'll consider according with things. <laughs> yeah, if I got rid of a few things, I think that would be, okay, now it's time for according. Was, do you want to say something, or was I not talking loudly enough? You have a question? Okay, go ahead. Matthew? Yeah. Would you say that last sentence or two? The practice of evil. The practice of evil. No, 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 no. Evil, evil isn't really well. I, I, let's just say for starters, evil is not Buddha activity. However, evil is calling for compassion. All evil people, all evil actions are calling for compassion. How about good? Want to ask about good? Good, huh? is easier. good is easier. Well, but my answer would be the same. Buddha, practicing good is not Buddha activity. 
It's good. It's good, 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 thank you. It's good, but good is also calling for compassion. People who are walking around New York practicing good, think they're not, they say, hey, no, leave me alone. Don't give me any compassion. I'm practicing good. Don't bother me. Well, actually, some of the people who are practicing good talk like that. Do you know what I mean? They're practicing good and they leave me alone. I'm busy doing good stuff. I know you're busy, but I just thought you might like a little compassion to go along with it. No, thank you. Now, if somebody might be practicing evil and you also say, can I, can I lay some compassion on you? They might say, no, thank you. Or they might say, go right ahead. Yeah. I think a little compassion might help me practice evil better. Who knows what they might say. Buddha activity is not doing this or doing that. Buddha activity is the way doing this is imperceptibly according with all things. That's Buddha activity. Just doing good is not enough to liberate beings from doing good. Beings are sometimes trapped in this doing good project. The Buddha taught, the Buddhas who are doing Buddha activity, they sometimes teach people do good and avoid evil. But if they do do good, Buddha doesn't stop being compassionate to them. Does that make sense? Like Buddha says to somebody, Buddha says, hey, Matthew, do, some, do good, do all good. And you say, yes, sir. And then you go to work doing good. And then the Buddha looks at you and says, great, I'm here with you. I'm your supporter. I'm your friend. I'm your teacher. And I appreciate you following my instructions. And you feel all that compassion, and you feel, this is great. OK? Now the Buddha said, avoid evil. And then you go and avoid some evil, and Buddha says, great. And you feel the compassion as you're avoiding evil, which the Buddha taught you to avoid evil, right? And do good. And you're following the instructions. It's great. And you feel all that compassion, and you feel good. And then maybe you don't practice good. And then you feel also compassion for not practicing good. Can you imagine that? Hmm? A little harder? Huh? Is that harder? Yeah, yeah it's harder. Does, is it hard for Buddha? I don't know. But even if it's hard for Buddha, does Buddha practice compassion towards somebody who's not practicing good? What do you think? Sure. Did you say sure? I agree. Sure. Buddha doesn't say, okay, Matthew, I told you to practice good. You're practicing good. Thank you very much. Keep it up. And, and Buddha also doesn't say, now that you're practicing good, no more compassion from me. You might say, wait a minute, can I get compassion even after I follow your instructions? And we say, oh, okay, okay. I'll keep the compassion coming even when you're doing what I asked you to do. Does that make sense? I'll keep loving you even when you do what I, asked you, what I suggested you do. Does that make sense? I agree with you. It doesn't make sense. 
That's the Buddha. That's my Buddha. The Buddha who keeps loving you even after you follow the teaching. (laughs) But what about when Buddha gives you a teaching and you don't follow it? Does Buddha keep loving you then? Does he? Does she? What do you think, Matthew? I, yeah, I think that's right. Our conditioning might make us wonder if Buddha would keep loving us even if we didn't follow Buddha's instruction. Okay? So that's our conditioning which might lead us there. But some of the, my conditioning is by reading certain teachings over and over and listening to them over and over again, I can say with some confidence that the Buddha I'm talking about does not dim the light of compassion the slightest bit when we do not follow the Buddha's instruction. Also doesn't turn it up. It just keeps it beaming there. Do good, do good. Okay, great. Here's some more compassion. Don't do evil. That's compassion talking. Don't do evil, do good. And then if you think you're not or you are, whatever is going on, the compassion just keeps coming. It never dims. It's always available, no matter what. And so part of the drama of Zen practice is, okay, the teacher told me to do good, and I didn't do it, and does the teacher still love me? And loving me doesn't mean the teacher likes me. Some teachers do not like any of their students. (laughs) And love and love all of them. They always love them no matter what they do. They love them if they follow the instructions. They love them if they don't. But love means they have this reciprocal relationship. They practice zazen. That's what the teacher is, is listening to the person and calling to the person no matter what they're doing. And also, by the way, mentioning do good and avoid evil as a gift, not, not, <laughs> not as a like, robotic thing, you know? How you doing, Matthew? You don't understand how what? How to conjure compassion for someone oh, oh, who's practicing. Well, you do it like this. They're doing, you do, they're doing evil, and you welcome them. You say, welcome person who seems to be doing evil. And you, welcome. Welcome who seems to be being cruel. Welcome. It's not the same. I, I just love the way you're evil. I, I, I mean, it, it is I love the way you're doing evil. It's not that I like the evil you're doing. I don't, I don't like your cruelty. But I'm here for you, man. No matter how cruel you get, I'm your friend. And I believe that by welcoming your evil, you will learn to welcome it yourself. And by welcoming it, you will learn how to be tender with it and gentle with it and patient with it and you will become diligent with it and you will become calm with it and you will see what it is and you will become free of evil. 
But you start by welcoming the evil. Not liking it, welcoming it. Any evil, is there any evil in this room, by the way? <laughs> is your name Farnoosh? How do you know about the evil? You should have a feeling like there might be some here. Uh, I'm just speaking for myself. Yeah, well, that's, you know, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> Would you speak for me too, please? <laughs> huh? Okay. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So, is there some evil in the room? Farnoosh says, probably. Who knows? If there is, if anybody shows me any, what am I aspiring to do, Matthew? Welcome it. Welcome it. Yeah. Welcome it. Are you fragile, Matthew? No. Ask me if I'm fragile. Yes, I am. So Matthew says he's not fragile. Reb says Reb's fragile. Now, you might also ask me, do I think Matthew's fragile? I don't want to argue with him, but anyway. <laughs> Maybe I want to talk about Matthew. I don't want to affront him. But I think most living beings are fragile, except for Matthew. <laughs> the rest of us are fragile, and we're calling for compassion. We fragile ones are calling for compassion. And Fragile beings are calling for tenderness because they're fragile. If I was ever engaged in evil, could happen. Some people tell me, I trust that you never be evil. I say, don't trust that. If I were ever evil, I would be a fragile person who's evil. And one of the ways I might be evil would be to deny that I'm fragile. Not to say you are. Because if people aren't fragile, then you don't have to be gentle with them. You know, go ahead, whack them, whack them, push them around. You don't have to be tender with non-fragile things. However, however, I suggest to you everything is fragile. And everything is calling for tenderness. Everything, including evil. But fragile doesn't mean that it's going to be eliminated. So anyway, the Buddha, the awakened one, because of this awakened, can be compassionate to all forms of life and death. That's the good thing about it, is that everybody can become free of evil and free of good. And you can say freedom from good is even better good. Well, yeah. <clears throat> How you doing now, Matthew? Still having trouble <clears throat> thinking about being compassionate to evil? Yeah. And I think a lot of other people could share the sense of difficulty in being compassionate to evil. I'm holding up the possibility 
that when someone's being cruel, somebody else can be kind to them and can teach them kindness while they're being cruel. Just like somebody who's trying to learn Spanish but doesn't know how can be taught Spanish right while they're mispronouncing Spanish. The compassion of teaching them the, the language can come when they don't know how to do it. And people who are having trouble practicing good, and so much trouble that they seem to be practicing evil, compassion comes to them and teaches them how to be compassionate and good. And, so, and, and to do it in a compassionate way also will free them from being attached to what their idea of good is or what their idea of evil is. And generally, being attached to good <coughs> is evil. And being attached to evil is evil, generally. And being not attached to evil is good. And being not attached to good is good. Like Dogen says, flowers fall in our attachment. The flowers of good, when you attach to them, they wilt. You kill the flowers. You kill life by choking it. And evil, if you fight it, it blooms. But evil is calling for compassion. And if you give it compassion, it kind of wilts. It kind of drops away. It loses its poison in the face of love. This love, which understands that evil is calling for love, to teach it how to be free of evil. Evil wants to be free, and also good wants to be free. Good's calling for compassion. Good saying, free me from good. But good sometimes knows that it wants to be free from being good. But some good does not know. And if you try to free it, it says, don't try to leave me alone. Let me, again, let me continue my little good rut. <clears throat> so what I'm talking about, Matthew says he's having a hard time. And many people say, you know, it is hard to listen to everything with compassion. That's some, this, is a hard, this is a hard language to learn. But I'm proposing this Buddha activity. Mount Everest, I hear, is high, hard to climb. But some people want to climb it. And Buddha activity might be another great mountain to climb. <clears throat> if you understand how good it is, you might be willing to make the effort. Each, each person, each suffering person, is calling for compassion, and the response, the compassionate response, will be different in each case. But people who are dying and suffering, they want company. They may still continue to suffer, but they want company there with them. Just like a baby crying in pain. The baby doesn't stop crying before the love comes to them. 
and they may continue after the love comes. But they're not alone anymore, and somebody's teaching them how to be free of the cry that they're offering. They cry so that we can teach them compassion. And if they learn compassion, then they can, they can receive it even when we're not around, and they can teach other people who are crying. So all these cries are there for us to learn how to be compassionate and to teach the people who are crying how to be compassionate. But it's hard when somebody's crying. And some people, you know, like they love this little person so much that when that person cries, it's unbearably painful to hear them cry. And they sometimes say, you just shut up. To the person they love more than anyone, they tell them to shut up. It's not the end of the world, but they, that's, you know, that's not what that little person needs to learn. The little person already knows how to say shut up. Matter of fact, that's maybe what they're yelling. Shut up, mommy. And mommy has the opportunity to listen to the baby and say, you know, it really hurts me when you scream like that, or whatever, or I hear you, or there's an infinite possible responses that can come forth with the listening. And all this crying in this world is calling for compassion. And we're calling also for all the crying to help us practice compassion. And so you are getting the calls and you are responding. You're in the army now. You're not behind the plow. You're doing it. We're all, we're all doing this. We're all learning to be compassionate with everything. And some of the stuff that we're being given, we say, I don't want this problem. I don't want this illness. I don't want cancer. I don't want deadness. I don't want insanity. I don't want cruelty. That's just more of the same. I don't want cancer. It's very similar to cancer. But I don't say I don't want cancer is worse than cancer. And I don't say cancer is worse than I don't want cancer. I say they're both calling for the same thing. And it may be hard, in some cases, <clears throat> it may be more difficult for me to remember to be compassionate to people who say, I don't want cancer, than to be compassionate to people who say, I have cancer. Now, if somebody says, I do want cancer, that's maybe difficult to be compassionate towards, too. But I don't hear that much. I more hear, I've got cancer. And I hear, I, I don't want cancer. I got illness. I don't want illness. For me, they're, they're, this, they're both calling for the same thing. But I don't always hear that. Sometimes I just hear, I'm sick, period. That's pretty close to already compassion. I'm sick, period. But still, it wants company. I'm sick. Oh, you're sick. Yeah, I'm sick. Yeah. You're sick. I'm sick. I'm sick. You're sick. We start to wake up to what sickness is and become free by that compassionate conversation. Buddha activity is a conversation with sickness, with health, with good, with all beings. It's the imperceptible mutual according of all things. And without compassion, it's hard to get into the, get into the game. 
like when kids are playing jump rope. And I don't know if they, I don't see that anymore. They used to play jump rope in the playgrounds. Like two kids would hold two ends of the jump rope and they swing it, and then other kids get a chance to get in there. You go one, two, three, and you try to jump in, kind of accord with the jump rope. But you have to like be compassionate <laughs> to get in there. You have to pay attention. Now, where is the rope? How is it going? Well, watch it. Okay, here we go. Oh, no, I'm with it. Here's the, here comes the here comes the here comes the suffering. Here comes the cry. Woo. Here comes the cry. Woo. Okay, one, two, three. Okay, now I'm with it. And it's fun. Wow, fun maybe. It's joyful. <laughs> it's joyful to be in accord with the cries of the world. And but not to be in accord with them. It's like, leave me alone. I gotta get out of here. How to get in there with it and feel the reciprocity. It's hard. You get hit in the face a few times by the rope as you're trying to get into it. But you can get it. You can get in there. You can get in there. It's possible. And once you're in there, you're kind of like, it's not exactly fun, but it's kind of like, it's really great not to be afraid of this suffering. It's really, it's better to be engaged with it than like trying to get out of the room. Like you go visit somebody in the hospital and you know, they look really sick and in pain, you know, and if you stand there away from them sometimes, you know, Ugh. But if you go over to them and say, can I adjust your pillow? Somehow you start to feel more in accord. You don't take away their illness. You don't take away their suffering. But the reciprocity is, is being enacted. Would you like me to adjust your pillow? No. OK, we can work with that. Would you like me to adjust your pillow? Yes. So you do. You don't feel, and the distance starts to evaporate. And the pain starts to calm down, not without getting rid of it. It's possible to be calm and relaxed with pain. But it's hard to be calm and relaxed with pain if you don't welcome it and if you're not tender with it. Um, zazen is deportment. It's a deportment. It's a way of deporting oneself beyond hearing and seeing. It's beyond perception. It's imperceptible. Not all knowing is within perception. So um, you know, one, way, <clears throat> one way you would know imperceptible mutual assistance is when you find that what's happening is always being responded to with compassion. When you see that when this happens, when that happens, you can perceive maybe a compassionate response. And when you see that that happens no matter what, that's, then you kind of know this, this, in, this assistance. You know it by, being, by not being caught by any discrimination. So you, in that sense, you know the imperceptible when you give up atta being attached to your perceptions so that you can be kind to an enemy and a friend. The perception of friend and enemy 
doesn't hinder your practice anymore. So you can kind of know, either indirectly or directly, but you can't perceive it. You can't perceive the, the, the according, but you can perceive that you're no longer pushed around by perception. And you can, and you can perceive that you feel pretty good about not being pushed around by perception after eons of being pushed around by perception. But the knowing is not, it's not the same kind of knowing. It's a knowing beyond discrimination. <clears throat> and again, one of the ways to verify knowing beyond discrimination is to notice that discrimination doesn't really, it, without getting rid of it, it no longer hinders you. So people can say, you're a good guy, and you go, mm-hmm. People say, you're really a bad guy, and you go, mm-hmm. That's what uh, the story which I often bring up that turned me towards Zen, one of the main stories that turned me towards Zen, is a Zen monk was falsely accused of a crime, and people attacked him and discriminated him as being a bad monk, and they told him so, and they, tried, and they kind of punished him, and he went, uh-huh. I got it. And then they found out that he wasn't guilty of this crime, and they went back to him and praised him for the way he responded to being attacked and the way he received their attacks. And he went, mm-hmm. So when I saw that, I thought, That's, I want to learn that, how to not be caught by people praising me or blaming me. Falsely, unfalsely, what, and that's another discrimination. That's, that's a knowing. You know how to do that. You know how to like be compassionate no matter what the world gives you. You know how to realize that no matter what you're being given, you're being asked to be compassionate. When you, when you understand that, you, then that's, that's a kind of knowledge. But it's not like something you figure out in your consciousness. It's actually freedom from your, from your consciousness which is kind of like making discriminations all the time. And in our consciousness, we, we have a, you know, there's a strong tendency in there usually to be able to grasp things. And without trying to get rid of that tendency, or rather put it the other way, by being compassionate to the tendency to grasp things, we can let go of that without getting rid of it. It's still there. I like to grasp things, but I can really be kind when I'm trying to grasp. And I can also, by being kind to trying to grasp, I can let go of the grasping without getting rid of it. So without getting rid of the disease, I can be free of the disease. Because grasping is one of our basic diseases of our consciousness. By being compassionate to it, we can be free of it without getting rid of it. And you can kind of notice that you're free. You know, and other people can point it out to you. You know? Hey, man, I just insulted you. Didn't you notice? Uh, well, I did, but you know, <laughs> it was great. I did it. I, actually, I didn't show you how happy I was that when you insulted me, I just was like totally okay with it. <laughs> but I was kind of like, I'm just kind of like resonating in joy that 
I didn't get caught by that. One time in class, somebody said to me, I, I want to confess to you that early, that at dinner before the class, I told a bunch of people at dinner that you were a crappy teacher. <laughs> yeah. And I, I was able to do what you just did. You, know, you, you can see how funny that is, right? Well, I could too. And I thought, this is what I came to learn, is to see how funny it is that I'm a crappy teacher. And somebody would say, not, it's not that I'm funny that I'm a crappy teacher. It's, I'm fun, it's funny that people say I am. It's also funny that when they say I'm a good teacher. But you know, laughing when people say you're a good teacher may not be as astounding as laughing when they say you're a crappy teacher. <laughs> but yeah, I was so happy that I, I and it wasn't a sarcastic laugh. It was like, how funny that is. And, and then, wow, how great it is that I really, I really can enjoy somebody telling me that he told people I was a crappy teacher. It's like, kind of like, maybe I'm learning something about Zen. But sometimes you don't notice, and somebody else points it out to you. Hey, you're, you're not caught by that anymore. Oh, wow. Yeah, right. How wonderful. But a lot of times when you're not caught, you don't even notice it. And a lot of times when you are caught, you don't notice it. But the thing is not to be caught. And again, trying to get rid of the trap, you're caught. So I guess we should move on to other activities, other forms of Buddha activity. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.